Wertes in der Kleinstadt Winden ein Junge auf mysteriöse Weise verschwunden. Die Frage ist nicht, wer die Kinder entführt hat, sondern wann. Das Ende ist der Anfang. Und der Anfang ist das Ende. Tick, tick. Du wirst alles verstehen, wenn es an der Zeit ist zu verstehen. Tick, tick. Aber jede Entscheidung für etwas ist doch immer eine Entscheidung gegen etwas. Hello and welcome to Dark, a companion podcast to the Netflix TV series. I'm Murgles. I'm Acorn. And I'm PB. Shall we begin? Yes. Yes, please. You guys want to see a cat? Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh baby. Oh, this paw. He's the cutest creature on the planet, man. He's so cute. Yeah. Oh my God. I hope to meet him one day. Yes, you will. Yeah, you will. It's not even a hope. Like we are going to take a ladies vacay somewhere at some point, the three of us. And you also both have to come visit. We have to go visit Mergs. Like, yep. Fucking friends for life here. Okay. I'm sorry. Let's go. Okay. Before we dive in, just want to point out that this is indeed a companion podcast and not a watch along. So you want to have watched the series in its entirety and be hungry for more discussion, more theories and things like that. We've also chosen to run the podcast as more of a discussion between friends. So each week we go away with the topic. We've written our own notes and then we come together and share it. Nobody has any sneak peeks at each other's notes, which means we won't always get everything completely right, but it should also lend for more surprises. And ultimately, we want you to feel like you're in our living room discussing right along with us. Today's episode is The Sights and Sounds of an Apocalypse, Cinematography and Music in Dark. Ugh. This is going to be so good. It's going to be so good. I'm so excited. Uh, and I know that PB as well has been biting at the, what's the thing that goes in a horse's mouth? Bit. Biting bit. at the bit. Biting yep. at the bit. There you <laughs> go. I was going to say foaming at the mouth, but that made me sound rabid. So I, I just stopped. I was like, yep, just <laughs> Well, I mean, it depends on how better. excited you are, because you might be yeah. rabid levels, but I don't see the foam. <laughs> Before we get into that, do we have any housekeeping from last episode? I don't think so. I'm thinking back. We don't. No, I don't think we do. There was one thing that came up that I actually just wanted to mention. I think we mentioned this in the recording, but I did notice that the photo of Burned and Regina and Claudia looks like Claudia hasn't treated her hair either in that photo. <gasps> like I know yeah. it's still curly and Claudia has worn her hair curly, but it looks like frizzy and just carefree. And I just thought that was interesting. Like I know that we mentioned Regina as a young girl has her hair curly in that photo, but on second look at it, Claudia has as well. And I don't, I don't know if we mentioned that. Did we mm. not directly? No, yeah. we didn't focus on Regina, but that is so nice to yeah. think about with Claudia not taking over the power plant and not being as like super driven businesswoman. She maybe had a chance to create more space in her life for just being free and being happy. Yeah. And I think like, not that you can't be free and happy while also yes. still caring about what you look like. Cause I think that's a weird, I think that's a weird narrative directed at women a lot of the time. Like you can't have, you can't have both things. You can't care a little bit about your looks or, you know, you can't find, um, you can't find uh, peace in that for yourself, you know, 
right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not crazy, right? No, the narrative no, no. is it's... almost always like, if you want inner peace, or if you want to be truly happy, then you don't give a shit about like your looks, because the only time you ever care about your looks is for other people. And I think that's yes. awful. Yeah, that's, that's incorrect. I yeah. think there's also like a level of at least when I was growing up, I think I've mentioned it to you guys before growing up as a teenage girl, there was a distinction between taking care of what you look like and putting effort into yourself versus being vain. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I don't know, just I don't there was a vibe. And I remember thinking very distinctly, like, oh, I'm going to be the girl that doesn't wash my face or give or give a single shit about how I look like, you know? Yeah, I definitely conflated the two. It's like a weird badge of honor to, you know, like to fit into one social group. You either give a shit about your appearance and really give a shit or you're of the crew that's like, oh, I don't wear makeup. And it's like you say it that way as a badge of honor. And it's like, okay, well, you can be you can do both. You can also be a, you know, a badass that gives a shit about uh, her appearance. Like that's just a thing that you can do. They're not. uh, That's the thing with that narrative that we get a lot as kids. And I don't, you know, because I'm a female and I have felt like a female my entire life, I don't really understand the narrative that men get other than from the outside looking in where it's that you have to be tough. You have to be masculine. You can't, you know, you can't show any sort of emotional weakness and that pressure to, because I know they also have, groups where there's a pressure to not give a crap about what you're wearing. And then there's also what they had coined a term for it a while ago, metrosexual. If you cared about what you were looking. Oh yeah. Oh my God. They gave it a fucking term. And I was like, Oh, come on. That's, I remember that it was, I think it's like early two thousands, maybe. Yeah. I remember they would also be like, Oh, it's very European. (laughs) Like to to like how you look and to smell good and to like wear nice clothes. How European wink, wink. Yeah. Ridiculous. As a girl who has a German boyfriend who douses himself in cologne every day, I can attest to the fact that that's like a thing. (laughs) Oh yeah. Same. Like I have a partner who also has a lot of European uh, influence and background. And uh, he dresses that way as well. He cares a little, he cares about his appearance. He's, he just, but he does it for him. It yeah. makes him yeah. feel good to present himself in that way. Like he says to me, I don't feel great when I just lounge around in pajamas all day. I want to get dressed. I want to start my day. And I'm like, if I could just have a drop of that, <laughs> please. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I feel like it would help me a lot. Yeah. I think the good news is that, that dual narrative with women and men, I think it's, it's been changing. I've noticed I that there's like now this true. middle ground for both, mm-hmm. which is so nice to see, like having grown up with that, the strict identity of if you care, then you're this, if you don't care, then you're that having that turn into something that's more fluid and more varied nowadays. It's, yeah. it's refreshing because similar to Regina and Claudia in the picture, like just live, live your life live how you want, be happy, whatever that yeah. looks like. Do you think that's accessibility? Do you think that's because of the internet? I actually do. Yes, mm. I do too. Yeah. I think it's because of the internet and our ability to connect with each other because someone who used to be or would once be isolated, be maybe yeah. be the only kid in school who felt that way or looked that way or wanted to be that way. Now that person is multiplied a hundred, a thousandfold, and you can find yeah. each other online. So yeah. yeah, I think in a lot of ways, it's not only given people a chance to connect with others like them, but it's also 
expose the rest of the world to all the other groups that they weren't maybe yes. familiar with. And so now people yes. are aware of others existing out there and it's not mm-hmm. so weird or scary. Yeah. So for example, we also have access to other media. Yeah. So we can watch a Korean drama and look at that fashion and go, oh, wow. Yeah, I like that. That suits me. That kind of thing. And where we didn't mm-hmm. have that before. Yeah. You were you were completely in a bubble of Northwestern Michigan where it's sweatpants and oversized <laughs> sweatshirts and sneakers until you die. Yeah. New balance. Sorry. Coincidentally, that is the shit Michiganders. that I go for now. <laughs> no, you do not. Just, no, you do not. No, you do not. You listen, you can take yourself out of Toronto but you cannot remove the high fashion from your blood. She cannot. What, what yeah. high fashion do, are you talking about? I'm wearing nighttime have, overalls. No, listen, you, but, but with style, <laughs> listen, okay. Michiganders will hear me it. here. Michiganders will hear me in that it is, there is a level, <laughs> there is a level uh, achieved with the casualness of Michigan in that you go to a fancy restaurant and people are still wearing jeans. People just don't dress up. It's just how it is. I noticed this when I first moved to Toronto, going to the supermarket or the drugstore, women would be like in yoga pants and their their casual Sunday wear, but still look good, like still done up or athleisure. Just, just yeah, but like a certain aesthetic where I was like, I don't understand what's happening here. Like I'm literally in corduroys <laughs> and a sweatshirt. What is going on? <laughs> Nothing matches. You know, it's just like, it's an experience. And I, I <laughs> but so your loungewear, Mergs, your everything that you pick out still has that high fashionness of Toronto. You still, all of your outfits, even your casual overalls, the way you wear your hair when you're wearing your overalls, like, dude, you're put together. Okay. My gosh. You're a classy motherfucker. Holy shit. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I wish that I had grown up in a, like just an area where that was okay. Not everybody had to do it, but just where it was cool to like look good because it definitely wasn't where I grew up. Nope. I grew up in Florida. And so like you were saying about casual wear, like flip-flops are acceptable everywhere. Yeah. Not just the beach, but like actual restaurants, like nice restaurants wear flip-flops and like uh, a beachy button down and some khakis, like khaki shorts. You're good. That's that's acceptable there. And that was not for me. I'm glad I'm not in Florida anymore. No offense (laughs) to any Floridians. Yeah. I am... I see I'm torn because I love the I don't want to say high fashion because I'm not like a huge fashionista or anything, but I do love that look that like put together. I'm going to work. I think what did you call it? Acorn called it something last time we were talking about this. I think it was Merg's. It was like business casual. Oh, business casual. casual. I almost said yeah. business core because I'm thinking cottage core. <laughs> well, and like there's all norm core. Stuff. Norm core yeah. is a thing, which is something that I feel that I fit into where yeah. it's just like blundstones, jeans and like yeah. a loose crew neck sweater. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I think mine, mine stems from a very, you know, growing up in Japan, they did have a very simple, but everything was like high quality. So it, I think that's where, when I think of why I am attracted to that or why I think that's like really cool, I think it's because that's what I saw a lot um, growing up. Yeah. So there's that. I'm really attracted to that. But also I grew up on a tropical island and the idea of just being able to go everywhere in flip-flops is so cool to me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yes, I would probably, probably be okay with that. No, good discussion and also good catch about Claudia in the photo. And we'll include the photo in the show notes, which... Yep. 
as an aside, as a reminder, this is going to be a very photo heavy episode. So yeah. make sure you go over to thegeekgeneration.com slash dark slash show notes and open up the show notes for this episode so you can follow along. That's great. I also have a lot of show notes for you guys uh, in terms of other podcast interviews, YouTube documentaries, things like that about the behind the scenes oh, and certain production aspects of, of Dark that I highly, highly, highly recommend if you're interested. If you like what we're talking about in this episode, then this stuff will only serve to continue to broaden your scope of understanding of it. Beautiful can't, segue, can't wait. Born, by the way. All yeah. right, let's go. Mwah. Okay, so... Since we are handling the sights and sounds of an apocalypse, cinematography, and music in dark, I want to start by quickly shouting out the main players of this production team. So dark cinematographer, director of photography is Nikolaus Sumere. The sound team is Alexander Wurz, Achim Hoffman, Jörg Elsner, and the score was done by Ben Frost. Yes! Oh, callback to pb started watching this show because of ben frost yep. yes that's why i saw it on netflix and i saw that he did the soundtrack and i went okay i'll give it a try because <laughs> i like i like his uh, i like his work yeah i'm just gonna start quickly about some some things before we really deep dive into cinematography because i have a lot for cinematography today and i think we all do i'm gonna just point out a couple of things about uh how the the sound was done for the show so the sound team was very, very closely tied with the showrunners, directors, specifically Bo. One of the things that they did was just like approve basically every sound that went into the show. So that's something that I think is really important to remember. Through my research on this episode, I found that this team was incredibly tight and they, they really handled things in a constant communication flow, which I think really just helps the story. On the show's IMDb, there is a fact claim, and I'm curious if anyone out there happens to have the information that backs this claim up, but the central, apparently, the central motif of the series soundtrack mimics the Doppler effect, a high-pitch transitioning to a low pitch, perhaps alluding to the centrality of the Doppler family to the story. Ooh. But So one of the things that they did in the uh, sound design for the show, this is from an interview. I will post this in the show notes. It's a soundeffect.com dark-sound. It's an interview um, with Alexander Wurz. Uh, about his sound work in the show. And he says that to enforce Jonas's movements in the sound, we created variations with different phaser and Doppler presets, plus hardware synthesizers like Depfer's Dark Energy. The rest was editing to final picture. Those are just a couple of the like really cool things that I found that I thought were interesting to include about the That's audio. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. They did they did a lot with the sound. So I have had I've been sitting on a bomb since I watched season three. Oh man. Would would and I think I've I've told you this already once before, and then I think I said I'm saving it, but this is the first time the audience is hearing it, right? You dark travelers, are you ready? So in season three, and I don't know why people aren't talking about this on Reddit. In season three, the main theme that you hear in March's world is a couple notes off from the original. It's just slightly different. They they pitched the song differently? Well, I don't I think he recomposed it, but he yeah. it is different. Yes, it is it yeah, is slightly different. It's so similar that 
I think it went unnoticed by people or they just thought, oh, this is a new version of the theme, which sometimes yeah. they do. Sometimes TV shows do different versions of their theme, you know, in new seasons. But this was cl very clearly done to me. Like this is, this is Marta's world. So the theme yeah. is going to be slightly different. So yeah, That's I thought so that, cool. it blew That's my so mind. Cool. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Because like, just, just think about it. Subconsciously, when you're watching the show, you're listening to the mm -hmm. song and because it's slightly different, it helps cement the fact that this is a different world with different characters, yes. technically, and different yes. experiences. It's like, I think it just adds to the atmosphere. Yeah. They did so much of that with the sound and also, you know, the stuff hidden in the background, the cinematography mm -hmm. and the color grading, which we'll get into part. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They, they do oh, that, yeah. too. There's like so much that they do behind the scenes because they decided to they really took a show and not tell approach to the entire piece. And I really appreciate that because a lot of times now in television, they just tell you the thing yeah. so that you for mm -hmm. sure get it so that you understand but they didn't do that with dark. They risked you not catching on yeah. or figuring it out or not being able to get into it. Yeah. But there's something to be said about the artistry of that and how it invites the viewers in to the experience and allows them to dig and pay attention to as much as they want. And I think ultimately it creates a more dynamic experience because just look at the conversations happening online. You know, we've talked about how much we love the Reddit. It is so cool and so gratifying to watch other people from the community pulling out these obscure like screenshots or the name of a wallpaper or something that they, they notice, and it becomes a community experience, which just makes the experience of the show even stronger. It's like, just give me more of that. I want yeah. more mm -hmm. shows like that in my life, not mm -hmm. the ones that, feed you the information and then go, hey, did you remember this thing that we told you here? Let's tell you again in this yeah. other scene. Just make yeah. sure you got it. The best example of this really stupidly annoying thing where one character is explaining to another character, but really it's the writers talking to the audience and it's so obvious. It's super annoying. It's from iRobot when the PhD, by the way, Susan Calvin says to Detective Spooner, which is Will Smith's character, she says, I don't understand. Why would he build a robot that can break them? And Spooner goes, Hansel and Gretel. And she says, what? And he goes, two kids lost in the forest, leave behind a trail of breadcrumbs. And she says, why? He goes, to find their way home. How the hell did you grow up without reading Hansel and Gretel? And she says, is that really relevant? It's so very clearly the writers trying to explain to the audience, here's what's happening. But then also let's address the fact that she should know this, but doesn't know this. <laughs> yeah. I hate it so much. I'm yeah. just, it just drives me crazy. And it pulls me out of the immersiveness of the storytelling every single time they do it. Every time. Yep. I'm like, oh, well, thank you for explaining that to us. I needed to be spoon fed. <laughs> So another thing is that Alexander Wurtz resides primarily in Munich, but he actually moved to Berlin so that he could be closer to Bo during production. And he, oh, cool. he did lots of commuting back and forth, but it was really to keep everyone together. 
And part of the process of working on the show with Ben Frost, for example, because Ben Frost was in Iceland, one of the things is that they really worked back and forth. Here, I'll just read something from this interview really quickly. So Ben Frost always had the latest picture versions and corresponding sound design. The sound editorial team and Ben got introduced when the first edits were done. He was composing and working in Iceland and delivered layouts and compositions to Bo that we got as well. In this way, we could match our sound design for some scenes to the music. We stuck to this workflow until the final mix, which gave us a chance to always react and edit accordingly. So it's a really beautiful, brilliant That's example so of like, good. yeah, yeah, how how closely they all work together to yeah. really integrate every element. Oh man! So normally, for those that don't know, did you want to talk about how it normally is done in TV? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my experience is very, very specific because I work in animated television. So when you start with your show, you have an animatic, which has scratch track, and then you have an artist and a musician do Foley. Foley is basically where they recreate or create sounds that would have happened in the original. A lot of things don't use the original sound depending on where they were recording. Or for example, um, they will record only the actors and you know, those scenes that you watch in movies where people are dancing in a party, they don't have music going on in that background. Oh it's silent. And a lot of things are are done in post using Foley. And Foley artists specifically use objects around the house and stuff. It's actually super fun and interesting and fascinating to me to recreate the sounds that you would see in the film. So, you know, a bone breaking is a celery stalk being crushed in half or a carrot, you know, things like that. And so usually that stuff is done after after processing and you know these things are usually done in some sort of a vacuum yes that's the main thing i think even for film they often have a composer reading the script and then they go away and they sit down with the storyboard and then they compose based off of that but they compose in a vacuum and then send it maybe to one or two people and then get their feedback and continue on but it's not usually done in tandem with yeah well the sound designer would have final edit like director and sound designer would be working with final edits and stuff like that and the editor would be working with that but just in terms of how it sounds how much they really communicated and how much they integrated and and adapted to each other is really awesome Mm -hmm. particularly special that's actually all that I have for for sound design and yeah, uh, and the music, music in the show. I mean, like yeah. we I think we all know that Ben Frost did an incredible job. And mm-hmm. we also know that the songs that were picked for the show are particularly, you know, they were really poured over. The lyrics are all applicable to everything yeah. that's happening. Some of those that's like mind blowing. I know. And some of those like songs are just frankly iconic in those moments uh, in a crazy, crazy way. Just to touch on that, that's what I appreciate so much. The fact that they found songs from the period, like the 80s, for instance, not only found iconic songs from the 80s, but also ones that apply to the scene, the story, whatever's going on in the moment through the lyrics and going as far as we've talked about this before and we freaked out about it. Even going as far as choosing lyrics from 33 seconds into a song and tying that into a character's story, like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's insane. There's also, they use a lot of um, Agnes Obel music and tracks. I fucking love her. I I love her as well. She also went above and beyond for her familiar album Mm -hmm. where she layered over 200 strings in one of her tracks. 
Wow. Yeah. She just went the extra mile. Which one do you remember? I'd have to look up which track it is. Familiar. Okay. It's it familiar. is familiar. Yeah, it is familiar. But she's also quoted as saying when watching Dark, the lyrics and the songs took on a whole new meaning. And she said, yeah. it's almost like they were written for the show. I just didn't know it. Oh, man. Oh, so cool. Which, oh. What a compliment. <laughs> yeah. What a no compliment. Kidding. What a compliment. While we're on the topic of Agnes, just want to point out again, we've talked about this before because it's just a masterpiece. In season one, episode three, there's that little montage of this is like the first time you really start to understand that these are the same characters seen through time because it has the side by sides of their younger version in the story that we've seen them in their older version in the story that we've seen them. And so it starts piecing them together. And that is the scene that uses the familiar uh, song wow. by Agnes. Um, so first of all, that's incredible. I love that song. I loved that song before Dark. But you're right. It takes on this new meaning. Also, cool thing about Agnes, you know that part in the song where she pitches or it it sounds like there's someone accompanying her, like mm -hmm. a man's voice or something. That's Agnes. Yeah. She has this like special singing voice that she uses to make it sound like, what's the word? To make it sound like another person. It's almost, it almost sounds treated. It was run through a software or something, but, but that's it's just not, her. It's her. Yeah. It's yeah. insane. It's insane. Uh, I think there's a, there's a video on YouTube that I saw showing her doing this. So we'll see, I'll see if I can mm -hmm. find it and, and link to it in the show notes here because it's worth watching. There's also a crazy moment. Oh, this is this is actually great. If we want to like talk about specific moments with specific songs in the show, you know, I have one that really hit home for me and it was in it was in the third season. I believe it was in the last episode. And I believe it was the track that played as they disappeared. Oh, yeah. And it's Block Party the Pioneers, but it's the yes. M83 remix and I had this crazy moment because I, when I was like 15 or 16, I used to love Block Party and the Pioneers was one of my favorite songs. I had never heard this remix. And yeah. so I was suddenly transported to like a time mm. in my life where I listened to that song all the time, but I'd never heard it in this form. And it was all of a sudden, like in this very emotional point of the show and I was being reminded of my own life and my own time and you know the age that I was at that time but also this show <laughs> and it was just like a Ugh. really crazy moment for me and I'll never forget watching the finale and hearing that song and just being like whoa dude that's the magic of music yes 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 it is and I had something similar happen with <laughs> so random it's a cover of damage done by moderat and the cover, weirdly enough, this is so specific, but I didn't know who the cover was done by when I watched the show. I just knew I loved it. I fell in love with it. And I thought that was great. But the cover is done by the artist uh, Robot Coke, I think is how it's pronounced. Oh, yeah. And his Sphere album is what I listened to on repeat while I was writing Gone. Oh, oh that's my God. So no I way. Yeah. Yeah. And so what somebody said was I tweeted something about dark at one point. Somebody replied saying, oh, yeah, don't forget moderate. And I said, it's actually not. I mean, it is a moderate song, but it's a cover and it's this specific cover. And all I did was link the YouTube channel. This is sure shit. Robot Coke replies to me going, oh, thanks. So glad you enjoyed it. And I went, wait, what? You did this? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, dude. I've been listening.
listen to your album on repeat. You're like my top Spotify artist right now because I'm like writing this dark show and you just, what is happening? The lines between dark and my life and the stuff I'm writing is just blending in what's happening. Yeah, it was great. Oh it was my wild. Gosh. So I didn't know, but that if you're wondering, that's who does the version of Damage Done by Moderat. And it's such an incredible cover. It's so good. We'll link to it in the show notes because it's so good. Yeah, sounds great. Mm-hmm. Do we have anything else for audio music sound? Because we Um, can dig deep into cinematography now, if you would like. Yes, I think that I would like to do that. I feel badly that I mostly went ham on the cinematography and the imagery of the show. That is my, you know, my day job is photography, so I can't help Mm -hmm. it. But I, I did do my best with the sound. I think that 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 little bomb of the main theme in season three being a couple notes different and uh, an octave higher, I believe, or maybe not even an octave, but it is it is higher pitched is very interesting as above so below. But if we missed anything related to sound, if this is your job, if you're just an audiophile and you want to let us know, please do. We will very happily do a recap of anything that we we missed via sound yeah but Mm -hmm. that said i'm so happy to dive into cinematography let's go okay additionally i will still be putting that interview with the main Mm -hmm. sound designer in the show notes so if you want to take a look at that feel free have fun so i'm just gonna buzz out some crazy production facts for you guys yes this is exciting because i don't normally look this stuff up until much later and i purposely didn't do it for this episode. I just focused on what we could see because I didn't want that to influence what I was hunting for. So I'm very Mm -hmm. excited to hear what you have, what you found. Yeah, I think you're going to be so jazzed. As I was doing this uh, research, I was like, oh, the gearhead that you are, you're going to be so excited about it. I also think so much of the look and the vibe, and I have one really fun fact that's going to blow your minds, of dark can be found in these sort of like so I watched a few interviews with Niklaus. You can tell that he is also a gearhead. Like he just cares so much about the tactile experience mm-hmm. of the show. So he was very specific in what he was looking for. One of the first things is that Netflix requires you to film in 4K native. That immediately meant that they had to go to a very specific set of cameras. Oh, that's right. I read this. Yeah. So he chose the Alexa 65 as his principal camera, combining it with the Ari Rental Ultra Prime lenses. So one of the things is that the Alexa 65 is by rental only. So he and, you know, Ari is in Germany. So he worked very, very closely with Ari during this production. Ari created a lot of custom things for him including stop it including so they they what they wanted to do they wanted streaks so they tried to create streak filters to enhance the narrative they did things by mounting things behind the lenses including fishing lines none of these things worked eventually through working with ari They created their own custom-made streak filter, which was them painting on filters. They hand-painted these filters. They made six of them, uh, and they tried to make them as identical as possible so that they can use them across the ABC cameras. Yeah. But each each filter has a different sort of tactile experience to it. Additionally, they really wanted an anamorphic vibe. So specifically with season three, they looked into available anamorphic lenses and they had these anamorphic lenses custom fit to the Alexa 65. 
because <laughs> because of course the the formats and the frames are not matching anamorphic or super anamorphic is like they wanted that old look the anamorphic uh, lens flares are very unique as well yeah They're the ones that you see in most of the sci-fi films where it looks like a sun on the horizon and the 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 light flare goes across the whole screen and it's yeah. flat and horizontal very different to say the more action heavy films where you see the nice big round J.J. Abrams flare <laughs> that comes around yeah. and it's, you know, it's got that rainbow and it's just like a big circle uh, as they kind of pass. The the anamorphic lens flare is flat and disc-like and beautiful and it spans the whole lens, the whole screen. Yeah. It looks like an explosion of the sun, which is just so great. And I it did not occur to me until you said that, that they specifically want that look that of course they want that look because that flare specifically looks like a sun exploding it looks like an apocalypse so yeah. i'm just yeah yeah i'm just yeah. nerding a little <laughs> bit right now and i wish i could just sit down and talk to them because there's just so much that i i want to talk about okay anyway oh my god i have so much more information for you peeps uh yeah. for the gearhead in you so uh one of the other things as well is that they extended the image circle on some of the lenses to fit this anamorphic range yeah and one of the other things is that in the color grading and visual editing they also found a way to create and simulate an anamorphic look if you look at the edges you can see that there is chromatic aberrations and blurring mm -hmm. happening on the edges and the a sort of vignetting which really specifically specifically was used in the 1920s or the 1912s era part. After many tests, Nikolaus chose the Ari Ultra Primes as lenses. Not the entire 6K sensor was used. Only a 4.3K part was used. The large lens mounts of the Alexa 65 was also adapted by Ari to the normal PL mount. The 32mm and 40mm were Sumerer's most I popular wide-angle lenses. I fucking knew they used a 32. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> He does say, though, that the 65 <laughs> and the 85, which were the long portrait optics, were his yeah. favorite to use. Yes, of course they were, because it's uh, the, the fucking... Sorry. <laughs> of course it was. The, the shots of... The, so the close-up shots of them with the montaging are done with that 85 portrait lens. That silk behind them, the, the, the softness in their face, it's all with that 85 prime. I stalked the blog <laughs> I st to see the stills that they were taking... Do you yeah. remember me being? Yeah, I remember. Do you remember yeah. me sending <laughs> oh, you everything yeah. and being like, "Oh my gosh, look at these! They must be using a large format camera." Well, now we know they definitely yeah. were doing that. Oh, yes. kill me! Yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a fun fact that blew my mind. I think you guys are going to appreciate it as well. So he tested so many lenses and there's footage. So I'm going to be linking also a documentary Stop. here, which I referenced, Stop. which is called The Art of Dark. <gasps> it's from the Ari channel. And it's an interview with him and Ari talking about the collaboration that they did. One of the things is that he tested these lenses uh, very, very extensively. And he talks about in the lens test that he did, the final lens test that he did, he had an intern helping him out and the intern was wearing a yellow jacket. And this test is what he sent no. to Bo. And no. Bo later told oh him that God. it was that test with the yellow jacket, which inspired him to put Jonas in a yellow jacket because of how good it looked <gasps> against the forest and foliage that he had tested. So you can see that test in that documentary, which I am going to be linking in the show notes. Do you remember that, PB, that um, 
color grading video I sent you yeah. on YouTube. Yes. And we were talking about it because in the video they showed a couple different um yes. different shots using the grading and we were like, "Man, it like it looks like dark, but it also doesn't look like dark." And I think you're the one who landed on, "Well, it's because the yellow jacket. The yellow jacket is what makes it pop and yeah. makes it look like dark." That's so cool. So yeah. yeah, so that was one of the things as well is that the color grading that he came to, they had specific color grading for certain things, but they had an overall, this is the dark color grading. So one of the other things as well is that I think makes a huge difference in this show is that Nicolas Sumerer and Bo went to school together and they oh. have been friends and worked together in the past since then and they both sort of feel that they have this like very good relationship between them and in a uh, a podcast interview which i'm also going to be putting into the into the show notes um there are two podcast interviews that he did with artists decoded specifically about season one and season two in one of the interviews he talks about how and this is a little bit paraphrased but there were talks about the director and the showrunner, whether they function as showrunners sitting behind as other directors do the episodes, which is quite typical for televised series. We also have a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of locations. You know, what is cost effective? It's a very big cast. And so in the end, we decided it would be best if the director directs all the episodes. And if me and the production designer just stay on the series for all 10 episodes. So we treated the whole thing like one big 10 hour yes. feature film. And yes. I think that that makes such a huge difference. And you can tell yes. that that continuity, that focus, that awareness that comes from having done that is so deeply linked in how good these things are in the show. Now, the thing is, is that that's not typical for TV shows because normally they do a pilot and then they hope that pilot gets picked up. Mm -hmm. And then if that pilot gets picked up, they do a season one and then they hope that they get a season two. Whereas, and you're writing as you go, whereas the writers of Dark knew everything ahead of time. They treated the whole yeah. thing as Actually, if... Actually, I found out that they didn't. They were still <gasps> working on plot stuff on sets. Yeah, but I think they they still knew, I mean, they didn't have everything done and written ahead of time, but they knew what they were trying to do oh, well, overall, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which which is the the main thing. Like they knew they knew exactly kind of like what they wanted to end with and kind of worked backwards there and filled in all the dots while they were on, but they knew they wanted to tell something in a in three sort of seasons they knew they kind of had a longer story to tell which i think m makes a big difference yeah so nicolaus was the director of photography and the sole cinematographer for the entire series yeah. which means that that's why we feel that continuity and that mm -hmm. solidity and that yeah. sort of that film language that is constant and it is what establishes this universe for us and it is what allows us to follow the details follow the information and understand the language of the show and yeah, i think yes. that's what makes a huge difference in terms of connecting with the media and not being confused and being yeah. able to follow all that stuff mm -hmm. um and there's tons of really interesting things i highly recommend that if you're interested in this stuff that you listen to those podcast episodes with him you read these interviews that i'm going to be posting you know there there's interviews with him where he's talking about how uh the continuity of jumping through time and the types of color grading he did for each individual timeline and you know all of these sort of really really 
hands-on details. But yeah, so that is the summation so far. <laughs> that is the, basically everything <laughs> that I found out in terms of production and tech. I have one more thing to add, and I'm sorry I did not write this down. I just remember reading that everything you just talked about, the way that the team came together to create this, it was so special that I believe that is what led into the creators creating their production company, Dark Ways. Yeah. Because they were like, we got to keep this together. Just like, this is why I get emotional because I, I love seeing people who are passionate about their career or their their skill or whatever it is, doing it well with other people who do their skills well. And like, we, we've talked about that with us, how we came yeah. together. And it, this is just like the perfect marriage of our different personalities and, and walks of life and everything. So like to watch these other creatives create this masterpiece and then come together and be like, we have to keep doing this. We're just going to create a production company to keep us together. Like, I fucking love that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's super great. And we've talked about that too, right? Doing another podcast oh, yeah. after mm -hmm. this because we just love this so much. Exactly. That's all, that's all my tech stuff. I do have some notes about um, certain, I have notes about two basic themes or rather um, two basic uh, tools that Dark used. Symmetry mm -hmm. and yes. um, central framing. Mm -hmm. Oh, the show features uh, an incredible amount of symmetry. There are so many shots that feature full symmetry with a character standing right in the middle. This is something that I think uh, narratively stands for this idea of being between the their mm -hmm. existing two worlds on either side. And specifically characters that ride that line and know that there are those two timelines, those two worlds are featured very heavily in the center. Jonas's house, for example, is always filmed directly in the middle. It is yeah. always filmed symmetrically. The other thing that is very frequent in this show is extreme close-ups. There are so many extreme close-ups on faces, you know, even, even in conversation shots, the camera is almost way closer than you would ever normally see in typical interactions. I think what this does... Yes, Peeves. Sorry, I'm just going to jump in here because a lot of this is overlapping on some of my notes. So I'm just going to throw mine in as you're going. Go for it, yeah. So this i noticed this they did this these extremely uh close shots of usually people's faces or their expressions but another time that they use it intentionally is this close-up shot of the missing posters mm -hmm. which is yeah. so when you think about it it's so incredible because normally that's when they would be doing a close-up of someone's face and they're doing it of a missing person poster so it's like a placeholder for their face well, yeah, or just this is where someone should be and they are not. And yes, I just think that's exactly, really cool exactly. that they purposely did it at this at the same way. Yeah. Yeah. My main theory about the way that Dark uses these extreme close-ups and uses these close-ups in conversations with other people is specifically to make the audience feel connected and close to that character while also simultaneously making feel making them feel completely isolated because there's no other information yeah. happening and you see this a lot in interactions with characters where you it's really highlighted who you're supposed to be it almost feels like and we have that in the very first opening sequence of the show right after Mikael uh commits suicide he's hanging directly in the center of frame and then we cut to an empty frame and Jonas wakes up and we are super close to Jonas's face, center frame as well. And then immediately we cut to a wide shot of his bedroom. And what I think that serves to do is tell us, 
you are Jonas, we are Jonas, and look at how alone we are. Mm. I think these close-ups are why the show we're able to connect with characters so much in this show is because I think that they are telling us this is how we're supposed to see it. As well, center framing is used for many psychological reasons, including like creating an image of power, of order, control, things like that. But it's frequently used to break the fourth wall, which comes back to a theory that I have about this show that I have developed over the last little while, which is that we are a character in the show and we are connecting with these characters and they are looking at us and we are I think it's an invitation or a reminder, a sub- subliminal message to us that we are integral to the experience. We are mm. the fourth wall of this show. Yeah, I agree I with love that. that. Yeah, I know that we brought it up in a previous episode when we were talking about Aegon, when we were talking about Aegon's episode, where we really start to see that the audience is a, is a character. There are moments in the show where I thought that they were talking to us, specifically that last episode. There's a line where she says, do you think they'll remember us? And I went, oh my God, that's us. That's breaking of the fourth wall. They do it a couple of other times. Ulrich, we discovered it back in Ulrich's episode where he says, do you ever feel? And he's very purposefully looking at someone, but we are in, we are in that frame. And he says, do you ever feel like you took a wrong turn? And that line Mm. feels like he's talking to us and not someone else. Mm -hmm. They've done it in a couple of other ways throughout the show too. But yes, I, I, I happen to think that that not only are we a character in the show, not only are we integral to the experience, but I think in a lot of ways, the camera and the close-ups, I don't feel like we are supposed to be Jonas, I have a different theory about how they're using the center framing and the and the close up shots. But yes, I am. I am on the same page about the fact that the audience is integral to the experience and that we are involved. We are a character. I mean, even when Hannah looks at us at the last shot and speaks yes. to us, I think yes. Jonas is a good name looking directly at us. Yes. Almost like that's the confirmation. Yeah, you've been here the whole time. Yes. And we yep. know. Yes. You know. Yep. Yeah. I oh. remember what it was. It's the audience. It's the fact that, and I didn't notice this until research for, I think it, I think it was a little bit before Aegon, but it, oh yeah, it was our um, Ariadne's Thread episode where I started to see that there is a lot of play. There's a lot mm-hmm. of you are watching a play and they involve the audience experience in the show, which there are lots of shows and films that have plays in them, but not quite to the way that Dark does. Now, it didn't hit me until that one Reddit thread that we're going to do a small Radio Winden about. That Reddit thread talks about how shots are mirrored nearly identically to a play that already exists about Ariadne's thread and the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. That is so purposefully done to say, this is a play. The audience is watching it. You are mm-hmm. there watching. There are also a couple of scenes where Marta is being filmed in the way that she would normally be filmed as she is on stage giving this performance. Then we see the traditional audience shot, but then Katarina crosses the line. Katarina crosses the line from audience onto stage and holds Marta. Mm-hmm. That is one instance where the line is crossed, but the other instance where the line is crossed is actually bringing it back to cinematography. So they do something really cool in a couple of the shots where they do a rotating pan around and they do it very specifically in the very first episode of season one and a couple of other key moments. And it took me a second rewatch to realize, 
oh, they are telling us he's going to go from one to the other. He's literally going to flip from one world to the other. They are very specific about when they do those rotating pans. So pay attention because otherwise most of the shots in this show are very static in nature. One thing I would like to add as well to that is that the editors do an incredible job of creating these camera moves where they do switch, where they do jump the line or switch the line. Mm -hmm. Um, and they usually cut on an action. So they have the actor block through the scene or they cut on an action. Sorry, they're not actually jumping the line, though. No, I'm, yeah. I just mean oh, okay. like, so, okay. for example, if they just establish sure. if they establish the shot uh, in one way and then they, they sort of move the camera around, uh, they often will cut on this action, which like cutting on action is super, super um, important and basic, but it creates this experience where you I mean good editing you don't notice it and so you don't notice that suddenly the camera is sort of on the other side in a way that it wasn't in the beginning and you're following this interaction but now the camera has shifted because something has shifted and that's something that I find to be super super cool is that in that editing they're really on top of that Mm, they're so good Uh, match cuts are also so frequent in this show you know a match cut from Jonas entering the school directly to Ulrich entering the police office and things like that. Yeah. And including as well, the split screens, just the crazy amounts of split screens that are used. Yeah. Which the split screens do so much to support and confirm the narrative in my mind. They present all this information and then it's like they almost confirm it and connect it to everything that's been before. It's almost like it kind of feels like an epilogue in some ways, because usually it will come after this like big arc of story or a big um, iconic scene. And it's like it presents this almost as a recap, but also a confirmation of like, yeah, we are doing this. Yes. Also, there was at least one per season, right? Of that cool montage that I would always look forward to, like, oh, it's the montage of this, you know, at least one per season, which is really exciting to look forward to because they always nailed it. And it was always usually at an emotional moment. I'm just going to take it back uh, a little bit because they do. They There's a lot that we just touched on that I'm going to revisit here, unfortunately, because it's all with my notes. But the mirroring and the symmetry. Did you have a moment where you realized the opening to the show was purposefully done? I sure did. And it was because I think I started I started watching the first episode again and I was taking note of the symmetry and mm-hmm. it cut from something that was very symmetrical immediately into the intro. And mm-hmm. the intro, of course, is that perfect yeah. symmetry. And it yeah. just, it was like a punch in the face where I was yeah. like, oh, how did I never like really pick this up? <laughs> so that's the first thing I want to talk about is that they went above and beyond for all of the things. They didn't have a cool intro to have a cool intro. It had purpose and meaning and intention behind Mm -hmm. it. And somehow, even though they chose some very spoilery moments, I still had no idea what was coming, which I appreciated. And I enjoy going back and watching the intro. And as episodes would progress, I remember being, oh, we've seen that now. We've seen that. I know exactly what that is. That right there, I think Mm -hmm. is a direct connection to the character's experience, how they don't see what's going on until after it's happened. And they look back and see they have clarity and they realize the the cost and the impact of what's happened. It's another reason why I think that the audience is a character in the show, Mm because everything from the moment you sit down hearing Tanhouse 
aka the voice of God speak to you in the very beginning. We know time is linear. That's what we know, but it might be wrong kind of thing. I can't remember the actual Einstein quote that he uses in the beginning, but, and then that slow pan in over the woods is us entering mm-hmm. Winden. Everything about our visual experience is us as an observer from the outside into Tanhouse's world. And I think that was purposefully done. And I think that a couple of times throughout the show, they do they do speak to us. They do break that fourth wall. Now, I do think that the... I kind of sort of disagree a little bit on the, the way that they're using the close-up shots to uh, make us feel isolated and that we are Jonas. I disagree with that a little bit. I think my theory is more on that they are doing macro micro view again. So maybe in a way we are isolated. We are isolated to this moment. We only have the information available to us in the same way that in this moment, Jonas is thinking he doesn't have the big picture. So if you look at all of the shots where they do that close up portrait, nearly all of them are when a character is making a decision or thinking about something without the big picture, without all of the information, which is mind blowing. If you go back and watch and go, Oh, Hannah's doing this thing. She's making a decision and they're doing a close in shot of her, but she doesn't have all the information or they do it with Jonas. They do it with Ulrich a lot. Katarina. There's just so many moments where they do that close in very specific centered shot of just them, but it's them in that moment and they don't have the macro view. They don't have a view of everything. It's just kind of them in their mental space, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I love that. But I also also think that the center framing is, and you mentioned this, Mergs, it's also typically done for a couple of other things like showing power, which it doesn't really fit here. But what gets me is the order over chaos. Yeah. I think that is what they specifically tried to do in this show. Can I share? Yeah, absolutely. There's this one scene I'm obsessed with. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried desperately to find this concept. Um, I remember watching a video about cinematography in film and this concept. I don't know if it's a widespread concept or if it was a concept created by the person who made this uh, this YouTube video. But every shot now. is a every masterpiece. Frame of, every frame, every of, frame painting. of painting. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you. Every yep. frame of painting. Yes. I think that is what dark is. So there is so much intention put into the way that scenes are constructed, the composition, the micro, the macro, and it really is it's order out of chaos. And it creates this, this visual structure to the show that just supports everything else about it. And there's this one scene I can't, I am obsessed with this one shot when Claudia is digging in her backyard and the camera pulls out. And the reason I'm obsessed with this is because it looks so balanced and so perfect and you almost don't understand why until you start picking it apart because it's like you were saying, it's a center shot where she's yes. in the very center of the frame, yep. again, between the two worlds concept, but mm-hmm. there's a lamp on her left, a lamp on her right and mm-hmm. a floodlight in the center. The floodlight yes. is a little off center, but the light it's casting is is center right in front of her. And, then and where is that light the directed? Corner, it's directed at the hole. Yeah, it the is. The hole that she's dug. Yep. Where she's found the time machine. Origin world. That's why. Yes. Sorry to geek out about this scene, but there are Uh so many scenes like this in the show where they've got a light or something to represent world one, world two, and then boom, origin world is in the middle. And that's the time machine. Tan house. Of course, the floodlight is pointing to that in this scene. 
Yeah, so good. Exactly. Sorry, please continue. And then her house behind her, yes. the corners of the house connect the lamp on the left and the right. And then yep. she is almost in the center where those two walls of the house come together. So like, like once you break triangle? it down, <laughs> like, a, like triangle. a triangle, my <laughs> obsession with triangles continues. <laughs> It's also, I think, super uh, deliberate as well, like how dark the the hole in the center is and how yeah. light that light is to bring mm -hmm. that contrast. Like your eyes immediately jump to the thing of highest contrast in anything yeah. that you see. Yeah. But I want this framed. I want this on my wall. It's yeah. a screenshot from a television show and I want it on my wall. Mm hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that in dark. So another thing on my notes, I promised myself I would try to limit it to three major things that I wanted to talk about triangles being one of them. Um, but they, do, they do a lot of that with framing in the show. Now think about that main symbol that they use in dark as well. The triketra, right. They use, which is that infinity and it's, I think it stems in Celtic or mm -hmm. origins. So, um, they use that symbol a lot. And so I think they also do that. Triangles are just good for symmetry and photography in general. So I think this is one instance where this just worked out, where the symbol is the same thing as what they are recreating on the screen with symmetry. So they use triangles a lot throughout the show. So for fun, during your rewatch, if you want to go through, pause, most of the scenes have things done in triangles. I'm going to include a few screenshots in the show notes where I have the triangles because there are a bunch all over the place and I didn't want to overwhelm you, but triangles are a huge thing in dark in the behind the scenes cinematography. And again, I think that's because they're trying to create that symmetrical feeling of, you know, we are in the middle in between two worlds and there's usually, usually the characters are smack dab in the middle. Another reason why I think that we are not supposed to be the characters so much as we, the observer, are our own character is that I noticed this during my recent rewatch, most of the scenes where filmmakers would traditionally cut to a just the object, we still always see the character. Jonas reaching for the map that his dad left in the ceiling above, we still see Jonas doing the reaching. It doesn't just cut to his arm. It doesn't just cut to the floorboard. Most of the time when we're seeing the characters doing these actions, we're still seeing them in frame. So it doesn't allow us to cross that line and say, oh, we are immersed as this character. Or we are Jonas, where they could have done that if that was the statement that they were trying to make. Um, so I, I think that's just an interesting tidbit. The other thing, there's symmetry and then there's mirroring, literal mirroring, which I think falls under the symmetry where they are doing, you know, tattoos in the opposite direction because they know they're going to be reversing the footage. There's that kind of mirroring. And then there's mirroring between moments in the show where they just repeat. Mm -hmm. Mirroring yeah. is a constant technique where we're not actually talking about reversing an image. We're just talking about the same thing repeating again and again and again and again, which is the whole premise of the show. So a couple of things that I like that repeat again and again and again, uh, blood on a chin, mark on a chin. Mads has it when they find his body. Helg has blood on his chin. They have a lot of that repeating imagery between characters. They have repeating moments of the kitchen scenes. We also recently discovered that the wallpaper in one of the scenes in the kitchen had a name that meant something and we didn't yeah. put mm -hmm. it in the episode. I think that was Acorn's discovery or Merck's discovery. It was you, one of you two. Do you remember what it was? Yeah. Isn't it Ava? It's yeah, Ava. it's Ava. Yeah. The name of the wallpaper they were using is Ava. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Ah, okay. Now my window theory. 
This is a bit intense. I'm totally in it now. It's a thing. You cannot convince me otherwise. There are moments <laughs> in the show, I'm just full on this train, where characters are in the middle between two windows. And there's like a window in the middle that is suggesting they are in the origin world. Or even more so, there are moments where I specifically noticed it with Mads. No, not Mads. Sorry. I specifically noticed it with Mikkel where he's in a conversation with Katarina and he is now on the right side. That, that shifting scene in episode one, mm-hmm. they start to rotate when Mads is alone talking to Ulrich and they switch yes. from one side to the other side, implying that Mikkel is going to go from one world to the other. Now, another cool instance of mirroring is that scene in episode one is completely done again in season three, episode one. Yeah. They, they mirror that. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of mirroring throughout the show as things again happen again and again. Characters will walk down the same path. They will have the same blocking from one scene to the other. How many times has Noah done that turn around, look behind him to reference what? Is he looking at us? Yeah. There's just so much here that they did with cinematography that I... I, I, I fucking can't. Uh, what <laughs> other examples did I have? Because I know I mentioned some already here. There's oh. Ulrich and Charlotte in the stacks mirroring yes. Hannah yep. and Ulrich in the stacks in the office mm-hmm. or in the police. They do a lot of mirroring between the realities, which is, I think, obvious when you're watching it a second or third time. Yeah. That Charlotte in the stacks in, on the same side, too, I think. Or it might just be flipped. It might be mirrored. It might be flipped. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. There are a couple of other scenes too. Katarina is mirrored in a lot of ways. Their conversation, her conversation with Hannah is mirrored from her confrontation with Hannah. The person in power is on the other side, which Mm. I think is really cool. There's just a lot of moments like this. And then, of course, there's a lot with candles and light. There's so much that they do with light. Oh, God. Lighting? I could just go on a whole other fucking thing. I have a fun mm-hmm. fact for the lighting yeah. if you yes, want to know. I would love to know. So one of the things that they w- that they did and chose to do with the show uh, to be more environmentally friendly, the cinematographer himself says that we have a, a responsibility to the environment. And so they chose to do almost exclusively well, a lot of LED lighting. And they used sky panel lights in the production a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton. So that's, that's awesome. Nice. That's, yeah. That's not only nice, but it's, I can tell. <laughs> yeah. I can tell. Yeah. And I actually think it did, it made it very unique looking. Yes. Part of what made the lighting look very unique because you can do stuff without necessarily LED. LED does something to the skin for some reason mm-hmm. where it looks like flatter, not as glowy. So, of course, that works in a post apocalyptic time travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also, I think I included this in another episode but i may have said i was going to save it so i'm just going to include it again anyway there are triangles and mirroring in that final episode too with the car and the street lights yeah and yes. i didn't i didn't realize this uh before i i watched that so if you look at shots of the streets by themselves from each world they're all represented in that third shot of that street don't know if i'm uh articulating this properly but there's a shot where you see the wind in power plant and it's this you know what i'm talking about that yes. intersection where they it's end that up waldweg i think is the street name yeah okay so Forest yeah it's Way. that it's that famous winden intersection that we see a couple of times throughout the show so all three world or all three worlds are represented in that final scene and it 
blew my mind looking at it saying, oh, it is an intersection. It's an intersecting of worlds, right? Yeah. You've got the one on the left, you've got the one on the right, and that road down the middle is that origin world. So there's that alone. Now look at that mirroring that they did in the light, those blue tunnels that Jonas and yes. Marta are in during that final episode. Mm -hmm. yep. It's an intersection. It's an intersection, dude. Yeah. You know what I noticed as well? Uh, when I was doing research for this, I went back, I watched some of the first episode. Mm -hmm. um, Jonas is riding his bike when he leaves his house to go to school. He stops yep. at the intersection. The intersection yes. light turns from red to yellow or from green to yellow to red. Mm -hmm. He stops and he sits there. And yep. there's just a moment where he's sitting at this intersection and then the light turns green and he continues on his way. Yeah. Which way does he turn? Yeah. Turns right. When you should have gone left, buddy. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that's so interesting. So there's also, um, I have screenshots of the mirroring from Jonas and Marta, both in the yellow coats. And they did the same, they did the same scenes. They had the mm -hmm. same shots visually from each. So I'm going to include those as well. And I think that's it for my main stuff. I think I've already talked about the other things. I really wanted to limit it to the major things that I see. But there again, there's so much more. And I know that from this point forward, I will continue to point them out and reference to these theories that we've talked about uh, today. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a small one from the third episode of the first season. This mm -hmm. was so one of the things I really appreciate about this conversation is both of your backgrounds. PB from a photography standpoint, Murgles from a production standpoint. I I'm a visitor in these worlds. I have that appreciation for aesthetics and balance and symmetry and everything. So I can pick it out, but I probably can't speak about it as deeply as the both of you can. So first of all, I'm a immensely enjoying this conversation. But I had another moment where I noticed something and I freaked out because I was like, oh my God, this makes sense. And I can see where, what they were doing here. In the third episode, when Claudia comes to talk to Burned at the power plant about Ooh. the data, he says, there are things that are worth knowing and things not worth knowing because you can't change them anyway. Right after he says this, the camera cuts to a shot of the two of them facing each other on either sides of his yep. desk. Yes. Visually representing their opposing views. Yep. Also, yes. Burned is sitting and Claudia is standing. And the very next thing she says is she points to the book and says, what is this? And then she presses him for the truth behind the incorrect data of the power plant. I just thought that was so cool because it's really visually characterizing Claudia's main character trait, yep. which is the incessant pursuit of the truth and how they contrasted that with Burns' position. And I'll include a shot of that too. I think it's also brilliant and such a good catch, Acorn, because it's something that is done throughout this show and also just such an important part of filmmaking is that there's there's storytelling, there's performance, like character performance, there's screenwriting, but cinematography, shot setup are narrative them in and of themselves they're supposed yeah. to support the narrative and they can tell us things about the narrative um i think i i love that you brought up every frame of painting if you have never heard of this channel it's a youtube channel by an editor named tony who created a series of uh, video essays about you know the the magic and the power of editing and how important editing is for communicating to us power structures 
that are changing within scenes and relationship shifts and opinion changes and things like that, that that change throughout these interactions that can be super, super powerful. Um, And so when you're watching something, especially a a show like Dark, where you know every single shot has been carefully crafted, uh, every place that the camera has moved, I mean, a a great exercise to learn this kind of stuff is to uh, draw like a map and then draw the placement of the camera. I do this in my job uh, whenever I'm working on a storyboard or whenever I'm working on a film, I, I do this where I place the camera. It's a great exercise. So you can see its its points and then you can map out how it changes the narrative. And I think it's just a beautiful art form. I'm just super obsessed with it. I'm, now I'm nerding out. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes, it's beautiful. And I almost wonder if I saw that video I was trying to find on that channel. I don't know. I had the wrong words. I was searching for every shot as a masterpiece, not every frame as a picture. But I, I ran across that somewhere in my YouTube search and it came every back frame to of me. painting. Yeah, every frame of painting. And that is for sure because his mantra is every shot is a masterpiece or, or work of okay. art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it's why definitely that channel. Um, some of the some of the really good ones, like the children of men one is so insanely good. And it's just It's something that I constantly tell people in photography as well. When they're like, how do I become a better photographer? I, my number one response is pay attention to your background. The Mm. moment you start paying attention to what's in the background of your shot, you'll, everything will be better. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's a couple of every frame of painting episodes that are my favorites, specifically the Satoshi Kone one, because it's about editing and animation and Mm. editing space and time specifically. So if you're interested in that, it's a great one, but also the David Fincher episode is also excellent because he talks about he really breaks down this interaction piece uh, between three characters and breaks down the location of the camera, the closeness of the shots, the change in size and all of that, and how that changes the power dynamics between the characters and changes their relationship and their interest and how all that stuff tells you the audience uh, subconsciously what is changing narratively for these characters without anyone having to say out loud, I'm changing my mind right now. So highly, highly recommend those. Mm. I'm going to go back and watch these now. Thanks, Murgles. No problem. Uh, they're, they're so, 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 so incredibly good. And another thing I appreciate is I did the thing and I'm done because he doesn't he doesn't do it anymore. I think the channel is. Yeah, he um, oh. set the channel to rate to rest. But he essentially said I said everything that I felt like I needed to say. And he just I just really appreciate people who do that and say everything succinctly and then don't just continue making the same thing for views or whatever, you know. That was my first reaction. I love the finality of that because Mm -hmm. it feels complete and pre-planned, just like Dark. They wrote a story in three seasons and that's it. The project is over and they're moving on to the next one. There's no like, I guess, sitcom show where they're on the ninth season, they're pulling storylines out of their asses trying to Mm -hmm. keep this on the air to get views yeah yeah or ratings so i've just dumped a lot into the channel and i will into our show notes essentially where you're going to look at some of these shots and i'm going to talk about some of them now again there's a lot of that center framing to represent somebody in between you know two realities we see it very frequently there's there's a shot of marta here in between the two lights in the middle of the framing of this door and the painting behind of Adam and Eve or Eve 
I almost said Ava, Adam and Eve, and she's right in the middle. And the strange thing there is that she is right in the middle in that moment. She doesn't quite know about the origin world, but it's representing crossing of that line. One of the other really cool things that they do, they do a lot of, and Acorn just touched on this a little bit, that very iconic profile shot where one character is speaking to another character. We see it so often throughout the show. Not just in confrontational scenes either, but we do, we see it where it's, you know, one world and another world usually having a face off. Now, the iconic Marta and Jonas scene where he says we are perfect for each other, never believe anything else. They do that profile shot and I've included it here in the show notes. They also do mirror that profile shot with Marta in the yellow coat, right? So they, they do that shot twice. Now, what I think is really interesting is when they finally meet to try to save the world. They break it. Mm. They don't have the profile shot. They have the intertwining, the looping. And I just, I saw that when the scene was happening and I went, oh my God. I think they could have done that iconic profile, but they didn't. They chose to do it this way of the blending and the merging, Mm -hmm. which I think is really, really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's also not his Marta. Exactly. They're separated by their two worlds. Yeah. Yep. And then they do it again here at the very end. The last thing we ever see of them. Ooh. They do the switching of the shots here. Now, another cool thing, and this is probably the last crazy cinematography thing that I'm going to share just for this episode, is that flippin' finale where they do, you know, again, it's very much an intersection. And I thought it was interesting the way they chose to do this or present this passageway between worlds uh-huh. and that blue light and how that's the truth. And they're in there oh. together and how they're in the center of each one. That last scene is just a beautiful mirroring the whole way through Yeah, where it's got, you know, Jonas has his door. Jonas is in the center. Marta has her door. She's in the center. Mm-hmm. They're mirroring a lot there. They're looking at each other. And then when they merge, This screenshot is maybe potentially going to blow your mind. So this image here, do you know what this is? The machine. That's Tannhaus's machine. Now look at this. Look at this fucking (gasps) shot in the finale of them in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now one, one other thing. Remember the symbol, right? The infinite loop that they use that knot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can draw the knot in this Mm -hmm. image. Uh Uh-huh. With them and with the actual lines. So just for the listeners, PB is showing us photos of the, well, we'll put it in the show notes, but of Mm -hmm. the power lines and then the blue dust that is guiding them in these like sort of three ways. Yeah. The blue time dust or whatever that appears in the cave. And then I just realized that place they go to, the matrixy world where everything Mm -hmm. looks like just the dust or the data or whatever. Is that mm-hmm. supposed to be in the beam created by the time machine? I think oh, so. yeah. I, think, I just yeah. put that mm-hmm. together Holy when you're posting shit. those in there. I was like, this is such an interesting way to choose to show this. Yeah. This kind of moment like in between worlds world or something. Yeah. It feels that way, but it's beams of light. It's yes. photo dust. Yeah. Yes. So it's so interesting to see that pillar of light and electricity that he's making and then also see it mimic that actual intersection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Which leads to the theory that everything is within this one moment of Tanhouse. Tanhouse is like Tanhouse's origin world and his trauma and his sadness and grief is what causes this split. Mm-hmm. And 
I also just included screenshots of young Marta and young Jonas. And I believe they're both wearing like a maroon red, which I didn't notice until I went back to grab the cinematography stuff. They do. They look like they are. Yeah. Oh, also crazy other mirroring that they do. So another weird thing that they do in this show that has caused me to go extra ham is with the lighting and with the colors that we have discovered so far, I'm so glad we did those things in order because it allowed me to realize I'm not crazy when I'm looking at all of these other shots that they're Mm -hmm. doing, where we see, for example, this, this is another type of mirroring. Yeah where they are mirroring Tannhaus's children. And I just included a screenshot of Jonas standing opposite Tannhaus's son and Marta standing opposite Tannhaus's daughter-in-law. Yeah. yeah. Also, look at the lighting. Yeah. The lighting in the show is a whole other fucking thing. And also, this is crazy. Look at Tannhaus in between time. Oh, man. Oh. Yeah, that was so good. In between what? time, but in between a blue wall and a yellow wall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So good. There's a lot, dude. There's a lot. Look at Tanhouse's son, the origin world in between both Jonas and Marta. Uh-huh. Dude, yeah. thank you so much for getting all of these screenshots. Yes. Because yeah. it's like brilliant. I fucking love this show. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Also, there's one other theory that I have. However, I do like Acorn's theory a little bit better with the where they are in that last scene being beams of light and i Mm -hmm. like that but it also looks a lot like this oh yeah the rain in the light of the car oh at the intersection yeah rain is like a super huge thing in this show and the director of photography talks about how important the rain is and how it is permeating everywhere in this sort of like misery Mm -hmm. it's that physical representation of the grief right Mm mm-hmm which I think is really, really interesting. And it's not until the joining of the two worlds. Oh, here again, by the way, here. This is the last like crazy thing I'm going to show you. So uh, back again to the Jonas and the iconic scene where they're both facing each other and they break it when Altworld Marta and Jonas try to save the world. And that final scene where he says again, we're a perfect match, never believe anything else. They do this cut again where it's like over the shoulder at Jonas and over the shoulder Mm -hmm. at Marta. But then we see this, the joining of the worlds. Oh. Yeah. The shot nearly immediately after that is Marta and Jonas again, but flipped. Yeah. Yeah. The profile's back. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It's so, so good. This show. It's like everything that they did. And the other cool thing too about that is that they show, they do that last close-up shot of everybody as they're going and as the light and or the rain from the headlight is kind of taking over them. They do that last shot of everybody close-up, which I think is really, really cool. And again, here, it doesn't look like rain so much as light dust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, So I think that's just really cool, which, you know, there's also other theories that I remember seeing on Reddit that it's like ash from Mm -hmm. an apocalyptic world, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't I don't think that's the case. The more I think about it, the more I think it is a representation of that beam of light coming from the time machine. Yeah. Also, this is crazy weird. And I put these shots in here for a totally different reason. But I'm now noticing something. These finale shots here. So I'm I'm posting some shots from the very last scene. We don't have a close up really of anyone. I think we have a close up of Katarina when she asks a question. And then Hannah. Hannah is the only one. No, and Regina. 
we get a close yeah. up of Regina as well. Yeah. yeah. But the last, the very last shot here, which I think we included in another episode, but I'm going to include it again too. We can overlay Adam's office into this scene. Right. And yep. see similarities here. But yeah. also just like the one flame on the table representing, and it's a red candle representing the origin world, the three flames on the top, and then the three people on each side and the yeah. one empty chair in the middle for the observer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. God, yep. you're right. The, the whole yep. table is full except for that one in, empty chair, which is ours. Yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah. It's so good. It is so satisfying to break this down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the shot of uh, the shot of Regina, by the way, has the three red candles in the back in the background. I know that we're talking about this like close up, but I think the only real true close up the way it is with the rest yes. of the show is Hannah at the very right end. Yep. Where right she here. looks directly yep. at us. And mm -hmm. yeah. So normally here's the craziest fucking thing about this. And another reason why I think that we, the audience as an observer is a character by itself. Remember when I said that most of the time when characters are doing things or thinking things, we still see them in the shot some way or somehow going to reach for something or doing a thing. It's not until that final scene that they do a traditional cut. So a lot of times in films, when a character is looking pensive at the screen or just like lost in thought, they will then cut to the object or they will then cut to the thing that they're thinking about. So in one of the Every Frame of Painting episodes, to bring it back to this, he talks about and he shows what would happen if I show this pensive guy at a window looking at this scene. The Kuleshoff effect. Yeah. The what? Yeah. It's called the Kuleshoff effect, where if, and I think they started it with Hitchcock, right? It was Kuleshoff who coined it. In the very, very early filmmaking world, he created an example piece where it's like a man and then he just cut in between different things. But Hitchcock really, really That's dug into it. what I meant. Hitchcock kind of like made it sort of explode. So what's really cool about this is he shows a shot of the guy at the window and then cuts to another scene of something. And then he shows the same shot of the guy at the window, but a different scene and how it totally takes on different context. They don't typically do this in dark because usually the character is in the shot in some way, but they do it in that final scene when it cuts to the chair and the coat with the red pillow, by the way, and the blue mm. stairs. Like there are primary colors right there in that last scene, but they do it in that moment and they cut as if we are also looking at that thing. Mm -hmm. We are also remembering and won't forget, which I think is really cool. That's phenomenal. They they mostly don't do that throughout the show very frequently when a character is doing that close-up shot. At least that I can recall. I could be totally fucking wrong. And as I'm finishing this watch through, but so far I'm on season two and they don't do it as much. They hold off on that technique quite a bit. That is my bullshit. <laughs> oh, I lied. There's one other. There's one other thing that they do. And I just want to talk about it. Again, I know we mentioned it in Ulrich's episode, but I just found my uh, screenshots from it. They do this shot of the hands a lot. And this is Marta and Jonas, but they do it with Ulrich and Katarina. Mm -hmm. They just repeat the same scenes over and over again because that's the mantra of the show. And I love it. I love that they paid that much attention to it to do that, to just have moments repeating over and over again, even if they're not necessarily connected plot wise. They just repeat it. And they do the rule of threes everywhere. And I mean, rule of threes as in like, not the actual photography shot. I mean, they're having three things in, in the image. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, all these things just ground us mm -hmm. in the story from beginning to end. 
It's so good. Shout out to the makers of Dark and shout out to the mm-hmm. Niklaus who did an incredible job, clearly, painstakingly, every single shot, every single setup, every single composition, every single frame in this show is yeah. a masterpiece Just for sure. Yeah. Thank you team for allowing someone to do what they do best from beginning to end and like yes. breaking the mold of the traditional production setup. Thank you for letting this man do what he does best. Yeah, it's so good. It's incredible. I'm constantly floored by everything that they've done in this show. And like, probably what I will do is I'm going to include all of these screenshots that I'm talking about in a Google document, I think. I'll include that link. And as I continue my rewatch, I may add to it. Awesome. I think that's just uh, what I'll do. But yeah, that's the main gushing that I have for this show. And I did try to limit it to three things that I talk about instead of going ape over everything. But I think those three things are the main things in Dark. The mirroring in the traditional sense, and then the actual physical reversing of the images and imagery in the show is also there. So those two things. And then, of course, I I could not get away from my window theory. I'm so glad. I don't think it's a theory anymore, man. I'm totally yeah, I don't think it's a theory at it. this point. Yeah, I think it's definitely a situation of, yeah, we're going to put you. And even if it's a situation of the building that they chose just happened, they specifically said you're going to stand here because you are in between mm-hmm. these two windows or you are in between something or they added something into the scene to make sure that there were three things there. Mm-hmm. For sure they did it. Yeah, I really do agree with you in terms of even on rewatch, just really taking notice of times when characters cross halves, the two halves of the scene, when they are on the right, when they are on the left, directionality, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I just I'm absolutely convinced that every single one of those shots and angles and everything was deliberately done. Mm -hmm. God, it's so fucking good. God, it's so fucking good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for this. Shall we do shout outs? Yeah. Hello, I'm Acorn. You can find me online at Acorn Bandit and also on joysons.com. You can find all my links actually on my website. If you go over to joysons, J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com slash pages slash Acorn. I have a lot of stuff there that you can go check out. Right now, the biggest project is this book that I'm writing uh, as a crazy commemorative fan project for the Final Fantasy X game, which has been my favorite game for my whole life. I mention it because I'm about to go on winter break and I've been waiting for this for the last like month. I'm going to have a full like eight days off from work. And so I'm going to dive into it. And so if you want to follow along my progress, you can go to ffxthenovel.com. I'm going to be blogging about it and talking about the process and, and all that. So that is what I'm currently doing. Amazing. Congratulations. And I can't wait. PB. Yep. And I'm Pumpkinberry and you can find me at Twitch and Twitter at Pumpkinberry. I do a lot of different things, but currently right now I'm playing through The Evil Within and Final Fantasy VI. And we're of course deep diving about all of the metaphor found in those games. And that's it. My show has wrapped. I'm writing something new, but, uh, probably be a while before that comes out but yeah that's that's what i'm up to so you can come say hi to me also i did want to shout out auto stim who came in 
and said, hello. Hi, Pumpkin Mary. I found you through your dark podcast, Keeping Awesome. I lost my shit live. We were in the middle of game. I stopped everything <laughs> to just be like, hello, can I screenshot this and send this to the ladies? Uh, I love so it. was great. So shout out to you, Autostim. Thank you so much for coming to say hi to me. That's me. And I'm Mergles. You can catch me also on Twitch. I stream Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'm working on an animated film, have been for the better part of this year. I recently just finished my background painting part of production, which means that I am now, I'm deep in production. Next week, I start principal animation, which I'm super excited about. So excited for you. Thanks. Me too. Uh, It's going to be a fun time. Um, So my channel is now going to be exclusively an animation channel. If you're interested in how animation gets made, you can come check me out. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. And of course, if we've missed anything, you can tweet at us individually. You could also tweet at us at Radio Winden. You can use the hashtag darkcompanionpod or email darkcompanionpod at gmail.com. And of course, special thanks to Johnny Caballero for letting us use the beautiful cover art. You can find him on Twitter at J-H-O-N-Y-K-N-I-G-H-T. We are also proudly part of the Geek Generation Network, and you can find more awesome podcasts related to cool nerdy things like TV, comics, and movies at thegeekgeneration.com. Thank you so much for diving into dark with us, and we'll be back next Thursday with episode 20 about Elizabeth Doppler. Yes! Yay! I can't wait. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.